I debated whether, whether to take these three verses on as just our entire text or to continue into the next section, but I thought this really wraps up the story of Lazarus nicely that we've been looking at for the past five weeks. So it's, it's chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, and it is going to be the kind of culmination of this story of Lazarus and his family and Jesus. So I've entitled this message, Marked for Death. Let's go ahead and read John 12, verses 9 through 11 together. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is God's word. All right. <clears throat> I, want to, I want to start with the context. I want to give you a little bit of a refresher, perhaps a kind of a, a novel view of this, uh, of this story and what's going on around all of this. Remember that Jesus has performed what John calls a sign. And he's done a lot of signs before, but none that are quite so dramatic as this. And feeding thousands of people, that was unforgettable. And uh, it occurs to me too that probably some of the same people who tasted that bread and that fish there overlooking the Sea of Galilee are now in Jerusalem for this year's Passover and probably in this crowd who now comes out to see Jesus and Lazarus. So the sign itself, raising the dead, it's sensational. But the more important thing for our purposes today, is, is how undeniable this sign is. It was done in the presence of many witnesses. And you'll remember how many witnesses under the law did it take to establish uh, legality, to, to establish that something was, had actually happened? How many? It was two or three, right? Two or three? Two or three witnesses. This was done, a lot of people were involved in this miracle. A handful of people probably saw um, Lazarus after he took his last breath, right? When his body was being prepared for burial, they worked on him. They prepared him, they wrapped him. Those people knew he was dead. He's, can't mistake a dead guy. And the men who carried him to the tomb and laid him inside and sealed the tomb, they were probably still in town. It's only been a couple of weeks. And they knew he was dead. And what about all the people standing around and watching when a mummy walked out into the daylight? It was still wrapped. And they probably haven't stopped talking about it this whole time. So the fact is, and the, and the fact where, that where we begin this morning um, is how complete and, and total the evidence was. So remember that here in the town of Bethany, there may be hundreds of eyewitnesses. It's indisputable. And the piece of evidence is unique. The piece of evidence at the center of all of this is, is a man, a healthy, living, breathing, eating, laughing, talking man. And he's probably been asked hundreds of times by, at this point, what was it like? I don't know. I woke up, right? He probably he could describe some of it. Lazarus, though, is alive. And it, it usually... 
usually after a, a crime, it's a dead body. <laughs> that's, a, that's the central piece of evidence. In this case, it's a living man. And it wasn't only the event of being raised from the dead that is assigned to, to Jesus' power, right? It's also his ongoing life. Every breath he takes at this point, every moment he lives is undeniable proof that the Messiah is among us because he was dead and now he's not. And so what happens now in these, in these three little verses is, is the last that we're going to hear of Lazarus. He's not in the Bible at all after this. It's the final outworking of the sign that we've spent these last five weeks studying together. And it's, uh, it's, it's a little parting glimpse. It's almost kind of an afterthought. But I think there's a lot here for us to learn. And it breaks down neatly into three parts, which are um, the crowds. We're going to consider this scene from the perspective of the crowds who come to see Jesus and Lazarus, from the priests who decide we need to put this guy to death too, and from Lazarus. And those are our three parts this morning. So we see this sort of interesting mashup or collision of interests and agendas in, in this scene. There are these huge crowds of people now going out to kind of satisfy their curiosity about Jesus. And they're Jesus' enemies. They're always there. And there's one man, the center of this firestorm, who didn't ask to be in the limelight. But because of his relationship with Jesus, he's right there. He's the focal point of practically an entire nation. Think about it as they arrive for this big annual feast. And that's what's going on here. So the first thing I want is for us to imagine what it was like to be part of this crowd. So let's, let's, let's do that right now. Imagine that you've been following the career of this teacher, this healer, this man from Nazareth. You've been following it closely for three years. And he started out with a bang. He was baptized by John. And right after that, he started showing up in the local synagogue saying some pretty outrageous things about himself, some pretty big claims about who he was and how people should think of him. Then came the healings, right? Dozens of healings, public and private. He healed people beside the road. He healed people in houses. He healed people when it was inconvenient. There was at least one case where he healed somebody accidentally because she touched his robe. You remember that? All these healings. And sometimes he told the people he healed not to say anything, which by itself was a strange way to establish your credentials as a spiritual authority, right? So there's his healings. And there were other things too. He was rumored to have walked on water. He drove demons out of people who were hopelessly possessed just by talking to them. And he controlled the weather with his voice. This is really somebody, right? And the last three years have been full of strange and wonderful things in Israel. And this man, Jesus, he's at the epicenter of all of this. Now, now you hear he's raised the dead. You hear that not, not even his enemies are disputing the fact that he's raised the dead. And you're on your way to Jerusalem for the Passover. There's tens of thousands of other Jews on the highways leading into the city. And all anyone can talk about 
is this man, Jesus, who some are already calling Christ. Could it be? You were raised, if you were Jewish, you were raised to expect this, to want this person. Could it be him? So you're walking into Bethany and you do want to see Jesus, but even more than that, you want to see this other guy who lives in Bethany. What was his name? Lazarus, Lazarus. <laughs> right? And you never, you've never seen a man who's dead and is now alive again. So you're naturally curious. We would be. Wouldn't we be curious? We'd want to see this guy. We want to ask this guy some questions. So what does this have to do with any of us here today in this room? Well, here we are in a building that was built 70 years ago or so so that the people in Fallbrook can worship Jesus among people named for Jesus. That's what Christians are. In theory, because we love Jesus more than anything and want to be near him. And I think the uh, 40 or so of us here this morning are enough to call a crowd. And so I ask you, oh crowd, why are you here? Why are you here? Is it because it's, it's your routine? And routines are comforting. We know that. Is it because you like the music? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> is it because it's a pleasant social event that you can count on to lift your spirits? Is it because this is what good upstanding members of the community are supposed to do? Is it because if you don't, you'll feel guilty? So I'm not trying to say, by the way, that, that you shouldn't be here. This isn't a guilt trip. I'm glad that you're all here. And I also don't mean to give the impression that your motives for being in church always need to be perfect. Sometimes it's enough just to get through the door. Amen. No matter what, people of God, come to church. Just get here. Whatever gets you here, that's enough. But now that we are here, I'm asking, why? Another way of asking the question is, what do you tell yourself about why you're here? These crowds, it says they learned that Jesus was in Bethany, and so they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. It's Jesus and, you see that? And it makes a difference. It makes a difference if Jesus is the one that your heart longs to see. It matters because you may or may not get what you want from Jesus, but if what you want is Jesus himself, you won't go away unsatisfied. And this is your first fill in the blank on your sermon notes if you're following along. And it's a question, do you want Jesus himself or do you only want what he can do for you? There's, there's something really unfortunate actually it's the one thing that is unacceptable about uh, if it's the thing that's driving us to church. And that's, and that's the occasional self-righteousness that gets involved in our hearts when we think about church attendance. This is the thing we really have to guard against. There's times when coming to church really makes us feel good about ourselves, right? Yep. And so too many people 
come to church because it's part of the spiritual resume they're building. It goes like this. Lord, remember the Pharisee who prayed? I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. This is a prayer similar to that. It goes like this. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like all those people out on the golf course this morning. I kind of wish I was one of them. But thank you that I'm not like that. Lord, thank you that I'm not like my neighbors who stayed up drinking last night. Can I tell you mine? Really? Okay, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like those parents who take their kids to baseball tournaments every Sunday instead of coming to church. Okay? Everyone comes to church for different reasons, but the people who stay because they want to be near Jesus always get what they want. The heart that is broken because of our sin and desperate for God's forgiveness is a heart that draws near to Jesus. And that heart won't be satisfied with anything else. And that heart will never be sent away empty. So any reason is good enough to get you here, but at some point you have to turn the corner. You have to want Jesus, want his cross, want his righteousness, want him as your Lord. I'm here for Jesus and Lazarus. What's your Lazarus? I know what mine is. So those are the crowds. Let's talk about the priests for a minute. Let's consider this scene from the perspective of the chief priests. Two Sundays ago, we really took a close look at these men um, in verses uh, 45 to 57, the end of chapter 11, because that's where they make their official plan to kill Jesus. Do you remember? That's the same guys, same guys here. Um, that in, in 11, verse 53, it says they made plans to put Jesus to death. And now in, here in verse, uh, in verse 10, it says the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death. Same words, they're doing the same thing. Which, which makes me think, that under the old priesthood, the solution to every problem was to kill something. And in one sense, this tendency goes all the way back to its commission in Exodus and Leviticus. Have you ever, have you ever read through those books and realized just how much blood there is? There's so much blood. Something was always dying. In order to make things right, the priests were told, they were told, to take animals and kill them, and their blood would atone, would cover the sins. So killing was an integral part of the priestly vocation back then. So in one sense, they're doing their best, okay? They're doing what they know. They've already decided to kill Jesus, the man himself. And now they they take aim at the man next to him who represents Christ's work. It's really interesting, too, that, you know, dead men aren't a threat to power, are they? When they're dead, you don't have to worry about them anymore. But a man who was once dead and now alive and is speaking the name of Jesus is the one thing that corrupt religion, corrupt authority cannot tolerate. You can either attack Jesus directly, which they have, or you can try to undermine what he's done, which they do here. You see it? They, by, by putting Lazarus in their crosshairs with Jesus, they're not only going after Jesus, they're also trying to 
stop Lazarus, who is a living sign to Jesus's power. And just one week after this, the, the priests of the old guard would finally get around to killing the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the final sacrifice. And as a result, under the new priesthood, the answer to our problems is not to kill something, but to believe in the sacrificial death and resurrected life of Jesus. Right here, though, in this moment, the priests want to kill the man who was already dead because his life is a testimony to Jesus. But here's the thing about that, and you probably already put your finger on it. There's nothing more futile than trying to undermine the work of Jesus because he can raise the dead. What did they think was going to happen? Are you going to kill him? Nope, he's alive. Kill him again? He's alive. I can do this all day long. What, how, think about it. What are they, if they actually succeeded in killing Lazarus, did they not think that Jesus was just going to bring him back to life? Or if a man can raise the dead, he could probably prevent that from happening anyways, right? Which is what happened because it, we're not told that they succeeded. It's just really, it's, it's really interesting to see what they thought they could do to resist Jesus. It's kind of like the only thing, the only recourse that they had to them, available to them. And it's completely useless because Jesus can raise the dead. And so what does this have to do with us? Well, let's start with this. These, these can seem like dark times for our faith, can't they? You guys feel that way? I feel that way. It does, it does look bad. But the thing is that there, there is no need to fear, even if it looks to you like the church is on its deathbed. And here's why. In 1925, G.K. Chesterton wrote his book, uh, The Everlasting Man, which is a great book. It's sort of a philosophy of history. I highly recommend it. In fact, if you have never read G.K. Chesterton, go today. Go buy his book, um, Orthodoxy, and read that one. Uh, the last chapter in his book, The Everlasting Man, is entitled The Five Deaths of the Faith. And I'm going to read you a quote from that. It's in your notes too. He writes, Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. The faith is always converting the age, not as an old religion, but as a new religion. Three or four times at least in the history of Christendom, the whole soul seemed to have gone out of Christianity and almost every man in his heart expected its end. He goes on to survey some of the threats that have come and gone through the centuries, like these major heresies that were far beyond anything we've dealt with in our time, huge and unbelievable heresies and conflicts and people who rose up who threatened the church. He writes, at least five times, therefore, the faith has to all appearance gone to the dogs. In each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. <laughs> what, what he's saying is this, okay? 
Christianity isn't the kind of thing that survives. It's the kind of thing that grows by dying and coming back to life. Those who oppose the gospel, they're always trying to destroy and undermine what Jesus has done, just like here. But every time in history, when God's people have perceived a threat that seemed too fierce, too intense, too large to survive, it turns out that that threat that seemed so big to us was just a passing trend. And the church, well, she was ready to be renewed anyway. It took me 30 seconds on Google Google to find this headline, Christianity is dying in America. We've all heard that. That was from an article six years old. But the reason that we don't have to be afraid is because to oppose a man who can raise the dead is to fight a losing battle. To, to oppose a man who can raise the dead is to fight a losing battle. And to try to stop his work, his church, is equally futile. This is your second fill in the blank there because nothing that Jesus has raised from the dead can fail to go on living. And this takes us to Lazarus, who, after all, is, a, is the occasion for all of this, this sort of novelty, this curiosity, a man who was once dead and is now alive. It's interesting, we don't, there's not a word of dialogue from Lazarus in this entire thing. Not any in chapter 11. Jesus has conversations with his disciples about Lazarus, with Mary and Martha about Lazarus. The chief priests, it goes all the way up the chain of command in Jerusalem, and they're talking about Lazarus, and the people are all talking about, but we don't actually hear from Lazarus. But I do think that we can sympathize with what this must have been like for Lazarus. There's two things that go wrong for Lazarus now. First of all, huge crowds of people want to see him. Can you imagine on a Saturday morning, you open your drapes and there's there's people as far as you can see. That would be a nightmare for me. Yeah, probably most of us feel that way. Um, And then the public, the second thing is that all of that public attention makes him a target, right? So those are the two things that go wrong. The comedian... Fred Allen once said, a celebrity is a person who works hard all his life to be well-known and then wears dark glasses to avoid being recognized. (laughs) Why is that? Why do you think that is? Bill Murray said, I always like to say to people who want to be rich and famous, try being rich first and see if that doesn't cover it. (laughs) Pablo Picasso, a little more seriously, he said that fame, he... He, with a straight face, said that fame was worse than hunger or misery or being misunderstood. I think the idea is that being famous, being in the limelight, is not a good experience. Being unknown, well, that's a blessing sometimes. And Lazarus is now no longer unknown. He's a household name in Israel. And not because of anything he did, Right? Lazarus was never a marked man until he became associated with Jesus. 
But now he's entered into the life of his Savior in a hugely public way. And his fate is tied to the fate of Jesus. That's why they, same words, they made plans to put Jesus to death. They made plans to put Lazarus to death. And we can see just how completely Lazarus's claims to his own life have just evaporated because Jesus has done this for him. Do you see that? And I think I can imagine Lazarus saying, I never, I, I never asked for this. You could have left me in there, right? I didn't mean to become a public spectacle. I want my privacy back. Can you relate? Yeah. Jesus draws a lot of attention, always, in every age. He's the king. He's the dead raiser, and most of the public attention that he draws is bad. And to be one of his people is to live under scrutiny. To submit oneself to all of this, it's a kind of living death. Or at least it looks like it. Sounds like it. It seems like it to our flesh. Oswald Chambers said, There's no such thing as a private life or a place to hide in this world for a man or woman who shares in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And you've heard me say this before. But when Jesus raises you to life, you might think that everything's going to be peachy after that. But in fact, now you're associated with Jesus in a way that makes you a threat to his enemies. Do you remember when Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, it was a question. If anyone would, ever, would come after me, do you remember what he said after that? Something, there's one word before that. Deny himself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The story of Lazarus is a perfect analogy of what happens anytime someone is regenerated, which means reborn or brought back to life. Every time a sinner turns to Jesus in faith, that person in a spiritual sense walks out of the tomb and begins living a new and strange and unexpected life. And if you believe in Jesus, it means that you've heard his voice inside your tomb. Jesus has raised you. And now you live as a sign of his power just like Lazarus, which means that your life is no longer your own private thing to do with as you please. Losing your life for his sake means giving it up, renouncing your claim. To be identified with Jesus as one who has received new life from him means giving up on that claim to yourself. You think about it. Think about Lazarus. Think about the life that's now in his body, his first life, the one that he received when he was born, it's gone. He has a second life now. He's living some other life and it's not his own. The second life that Lazarus is living doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Jesus. 
And so it goes with you and me. If this life that has been given to us is uncomfortable and demanding, so be it. Paul, all throughout his writings, developed the same theme, by the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he writes, I mean, you all know these verses probably. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And the trajectory of ordinary Christian experiences is one from, is from being one of the crowd who come to Jesus just sort of out of curiosity, but also other things. It's Jesus plus Lazarus. It's whatever it is that you think you can get from coming to Jesus. From that to being identified with Jesus, just exactly as Lazarus is here. And that means having skin in the game. That means not being the captain of your own ship anymore. And by the way, I think this is the one thing that most people can't tolerate about Christianity. You don't belong to yourself. This is hard. Nearness to Jesus looks for all the world like a death sentence, but it's actually a new life. And I'll close with Romans 14, verses seven through nine. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Let's pray.